Well, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 1 still, and continuing to walk our way through this passage, and why don't we have a word of prayer, then we'll read some of the scripture and carry on where we left off the last time in the book of Gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your blessings today. God, you are so good to us, and your grace is so amazing uh, that saved and found, sought out a wretch like me and uh, like those of us sitting here tonight. Lord, we know who we are, and we know who you are from the Bible. And God, we thank you that you have been so good to us. Your grace has been so freely given, yet it costs you so much. Lord, we thank you for your blessings to us, for forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Lord, for these amazing, amazing truths. And I pray, God, you'll help us. Because they can become, Lord, you know, you know us. They can become so normal. Become so um, unenthusiastic in our hearts and lives just because, Lord, we get so used to them. But I pray you'd stir the fire again, Lord, in us to uh, the coals, Lord, of remembrance. That we would remember, God, what you have done for us. And that, Lord, we would be grateful. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this account we have of Jesus and, Lord, how he came. Lord, again, help us to see the wonderful truth in this, not get used to it. And, uh, Lord, I pray you'll help us tonight as we see some familiar passages in your word. God, I pray you'd show us exactly what you would have us to see. And, God, I pray you'd help each one of us tonight to take these truths and to apply them to our own hearts. God, where you would put your finger. And uh, Lord, may you change us tonight from your word as we lift up Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. In Mark chapter 1, uh, we have seen uh, a number of things. That we've, we've called this first part of our series, Jesus Came. And aren't you glad Jesus came? Aren't you glad we can go back over 2,000 years ago? We have an account, we have actually a number of accounts Uh, recorded for us in the scriptures, showing us, giving us the details of how Jesus came. And we saw that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And I'm so glad Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and showed us, as we saw there, that God takes the small. He takes the humble. He takes the weak. And he's able to take that and he's able and he delights in using that because he gets all the glory for it. When God Uh, when God allowed Jesus to come from Nazareth of Galilee. We don't have time to go back into all of that and what that means, but it's so important. I'm glad Jesus came to his baptism. And we saw in that where Jesus came, and uh, uh, our pastor was mentioning a minute ago that we're going to have a baptismal service next Sunday night. And how that baptismal service is identification with Jesus Christ. We are identifying ourselves with Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. And we saw Jesus came to his baptism. What was he doing when coming to his baptism? He was identifying. Baptism is always about identification. It's never saving, but it always identifies. What was Jesus identifying with? He was identifying with us. He had no sin. He who knew no sin was made what? Sin for us. And when he came to his baptism, he came repenting, but not for himself. He came confessing. He came in humility, but not for himself, for you and for me. Aren't you glad Jesus came to his baptism? For you and for me. And I'm glad Jesus came to his anointing. 
He came to his anointing where the Father spoke from heaven. And this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's so many things you could do Bible studies on, by the way, in the Scripture. One of those things is the times that God the Father speaks from heaven. Where are those times in the Bible that God speaks from heaven? Study that out sometime. Another neat one is the mountains in the Bible. Have you ever studied the mountains and Mount Sinai, Mount Calvary, Mount... Boy, so interesting. Such interesting Bible studies that you can do. Well, God spoke from heaven and the the Holy Spirit came as a dove. And we learn lessons on that. Um, And let's go ahead and pick it up here in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. We're going to go to our next point. Mark 1, beginning with verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. The next point in our lesson is Jesus came to his temptation. He came to Nazareth, came from Nazareth to Galilee. He came to his baptism. He came to his anointing. And he came to his temptation. Immediately. Now here we are again in the book of Mark. And Mark is being Mark. Mark is very pointed again. His gospel is just boom, 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 bullet point, bullet point. And uh, yet we get quite a bit of detail in it. And Mark uses the phrases immediately, straightway, immediately, straightway, all of a sudden. Uh, quite quite often throughout his gospel. And here we are in chapter uh, 1, verse 12. Immediately the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, driveth him into the wilderness. And Mark uses a very interesting word there, driveth. And if you look the word driveth up, it literally means casts him forth. That's what that means right there. The Holy Spirit, we see the Trinity, of course, at Jesus' baptism. And the God, the Holy Spirit, drove or cast forth God the Son into the wilderness. It's the same word used of casting out demons by Christ later on in the Gospels. Same word, driveth or cast forth Jesus. So we get the picture here that this is no leisurely walk. Sometimes you'll see pictures of Jesus walking around with a staff, slowly going out into the wilderness. No, not according to this passage. The picture we get here is that Jesus is hurrying. He's rushing. He's had his baptism, his anointing. The Father has spoken to Jesus. And now Jesus is driven. He is going out in this way, hastening into the wilderness for a purpose. Swift movement. Driven on without stopping. He is hurrying for what? To face the enemy. And this is epic. Sometimes we, we don't put two and two together in the Bible. Sometimes we, 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 we know stories from Sunday school and we remember all those stories. But as a child, you, sometimes you don't get the full picture. And as we grow and as we grow in the Lord, sometimes we're able to think more, to understand more. And here we have the Son of God driven into the wilderness to meet up with the enemy. The enemy of God and the enemy of your soul. To be tempted. To be tempted of the devil. 
filled with human dread and uneasiness. Jesus Christ, we must remember, He is God, the Son. How much God is Jesus? 100% God. Not 50%, 100% God. And yet, He is human. How much human? 100% human. One of those things that will blow your mind. can't even understand that. Yet, it's scriptural truth. Jesus is human, and He is heading to temptation. Anybody here know what temptation is all about? You know, there are some things in the Bible that are hard for us to understand, right? And there are some things in the Bible, if we think about it for a minute, not hard to understand. Because we know what being tempted is about. It probably happened to us this past week, right? Probably today. We know what it is to be tempted. And when we say Jesus, Jesus went out to be tempted. Let's think about that for a minute for a man who's 100% human. Yes, he's 100% God. But he's 100% human, and he's going out to be tempted. And I believe Jesus is going to have true, real temptation in his life. Now, we could get into all of the, the questions, well, could he have sinned and all of that? And I'm not going to get into that tonight. <laughs> That's not my message tonight. I personally don't believe Jesus could have sinned because sin comes from within. Jesus Christ could be tempted, but not of the flesh. Maybe we could put it that way. Not of the flesh, because Jesus Christ did not have the flesh that we have. He was 100% God, holy God. Yet he could be tempted of Satan, and he could be tempted of the world. But he's going out for real, true temptation. And let's remember, too, as we know, but children and young people need to understand this as well. It is not a sin to be tempted, right? It is not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Um, to go through temptation is part of the course for living in this sinful world. We will go through temptation. You will go through temptation all of your life. But sin is having the wrong response to that temptation. When the temptation comes, then there's a choice that presents itself. And then that choice that we make determines whether we're going to have sin in our life or whether we're going to grow in grace and in strength. And the Lord give us the victory over that temptation. The sin comes um, in giving in to the temptation. Jesus Christ was without sin. Jesus could be tempted of the devil and of the world. So the Spirit, after Jesus' anointing and baptism, drives him to face the forces, the principalities, the powers that ruin people that wreck families, that spoil men and women. Those principalities, those powers, those temptations, Jesus Christ is being driven to face. Now, notice in verse 13 that it does not say he was tempted of Satan after 40 days. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days, and then all of a sudden, towards the end of it, he's tempted. Well, that's true. And it says that in another gospel, he was hungry. He had not eaten in 40 days and Satan came to him. But look at the passage here. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted of Satan. Jesus Christ was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, we're not given all of the specific temptations, of course. But we are given in other gospels three of the final temptations that Jesus was given. And I, I debated on going into this tonight, 
because it's not in this particular gospel. But I think the Lord has led us to go into those three temptations, even though they're not listed in this particular gospel, because there's so much that we can learn from from this temptation of Christ. First of all, and you'll remember, and we won't turn there, but let me just read it to you. The first temptation that we have a record of in the Bible, the devil looked at Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God, command the stone or the stones to become what? Bread. Command the stones to become bread. Now, first of all, and again, this is just to give us a little picture of the temptations Jesus was going through and what was happening here. If you are the Son of God, Isn't that something? Have you ever thought about that part of the temptation? If you are the Son of God. At the baptism of Jesus, what did the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And who heard that? Jesus heard that. Who else heard that? We don't know who all heard the voice or what they understood. But then the tempter turns right around. And says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to be bread. This is the same thing Satan does to you. It's the same thing Satan does to me. It's the same thing Satan did to Eve in the garden. It's the same thing he did to Adam in the garden. Questioning God. Questioning what God has said. Hath God said? Is this really what you're supposed to think about what God said? Let's have some thought experiment on this. Let's look at this in different lights, okay? Let's, let's look at it in different ways. You know, it's all about interpretation, right? There's our different ways to interpret this. There's different schools of thought on this. There's different philosophies. Isn't that exactly how Satan works? He throws and he loves to throw doubt in where there was intended to be certainty. And there are some things that we can be absolutely certain about. God said... This is my beloved son. Satan said, if you are the son of God, then command the stone to become bread. So, fellow Christian, let's learn the lesson. Satan loves to throw doubt where God has intended to be certainty. Right? And that's true in your life. That's true in my life. Those things that are certain, don't let Satan cast doubt on those areas. Number two, here's another temptation Jesus went through in this time. Let me read it to you. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and he set him, he sets him on a pinnacle of the temple, and Satan says to him, once again, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. What is that all about? Have you ever read these and wondered, what in the world is is, is he talking about? Dash thy foot against a stone? Take your Bible and hold your place here in Mark 1 and look over to Psalm chapter 91. This is the passage Satan is quoting. You know Satan loves to quote Scripture? The worst lie is always the lie that's mixed with truth. Always the lie that's closest to the truth. That's the most dangerous kind of lie. I had an illustration for that, and I'm trying to remember it off the cuff here. 
If you have a clock, this is a good illustration because we just changed the clock. If you have a clock that's an hour off, it's less dangerous than a clock that's five minutes off. Right? I could miss uh, my airplane uh, because my clock was five minutes off. The, the most danger is the is the true is the lie that's the closest to the truth. That's where the most danger lies. And Satan loves to do that. He loves to bring in truth to his lies, make it sound good. Many of the false religions today are very close to the truth of Christianity. If you study them, study out the Quran, study out the the, the religion of of Muhammad. And it gets very, very close. We have the same characters, even Moses and, and all these things, and yet it's a lie. And this is what Satan loves to do. So Psalm chapter 91 is the passage that Satan is quoting from. And let's just read that passage. It's Psalm chapter 91, beginning with verse... Uh, let's begin with verse 9. Verse 9, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he, now here it is, for he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. So that's the passage, those two verses, that Satan quotes to Jesus in this temptation. And let me mention this. Jesus did not deny the passage of Scripture. Jesus did not say the passage of Scripture wasn't true. And personally, I believe Jesus was affirming the truth that Psalm chapter 91 is a messianic psalm. We go into different Psalms of the Old Testament, different passages of Scripture, but especially the Psalms, and we see that many of them are referring to the Messiah. Psalm chapter 91 is referring to, I believe, in many ways, the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. And Jesus, when Satan quoted this, he quoted it to Jesus. Jesus did not deny that it was true. But what is this all about? Not dashing thy foot against a stone. Satan says, throw yourself down and you won't dash your foot against a stone. According to Psalm 91, and we just read that in the passage, what does the next verse say that Satan so conveniently left out? Verse 13, thou shalt tread upon the what? Lion and the what? Now what's an adder? That's a snake. The young lion and the what? Dragon. Thou shalt trample under feet. Satan didn't quote that part, did he? What did Jesus come to do that Satan probably knew about? What was it Satan's trying to stop? What was it he's trying to hinder Jesus from doing? What do we know about the feet of Jesus? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Where, listen... These two met up before. You see, the temptation of Jesus wasn't the first time these two had met. That's why I said a minute ago, this is epic. Long ago, when Jesus, when all this began, Genesis chapter 3, let me, I think I have it on the screen here. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, unto the what? The serpent, we know who that is. 
I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. There's the virgin birth first mentioned. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his what? His foot, his heel. We're picking up a conversation here that happened thousands of years before is what's going on. And Satan's trying to throw in a big old divergence. He's trying to get Jesus to not do what Jesus had come to do. And Satan very well knew what Jesus had come to do. Satan knows this is a messianic song, which is why he quotes it to Jesus. The point is not what Jesus is not going to walk on, but what he is going to walk on, which verse 13 says, he's going to walk on lions and snakes and dragons. And what is that? What is the lion in the Bible walking about seeking whom he may devour? Who is the great serpent in the scriptures? Who is it that the Bible calls the dragon? It's Satan. It's Satan and his minions. And Jesus has come to destroy that kingdom. And he's come to set up a kingdom. And the devil's offering him a different kingdom. That's what this is all about. The devil is offering the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came from Nazareth, a different kingdom. Jesus is going to walk on Satan. Satan, again, is trying to throw a diversion. Genesis 3.15, we see that Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent with his foot. Christ came to earth in fulfillment of the promise of God that God had made to the serpent. These two, again, know each other. And he is tempting Jesus away from his purpose. Are you sure you want to go through with this? Does Jesus know what he's going to go through? Do you remember Jesus in the garden before the cross? Is Jesus human? He's weeping. He's crying. If there be any other way. He said that. That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? But what a picture of the human suffering of Jesus Christ. Let this cup pass from me. But not my will, thy will be done. Are you sure you want to go through with this? Are you sure the Father loves you? You ever thought that kind of thing before? Ever crossed your mind? Are you sure you can be forgiven after what you did? Are you sure that Jesus really meant that for you? Aren't those the kind of temptations he puts in our head and in our mind? He's the great deceiver. He's the great deceiver, and he'll do the same thing to us. Are you sure you are the Son of God? Why, if so, then let the Lord keep his word to you and prove it. Cast yourself off this pinnacle. If he loves you like you say he does, why would he let your heel be bruised? Would he not hold you up in his hand? Why don't you show off? God will protect you. Do you really, Jesus, want your heel to be bruised? Because it's going to hurt. So this is what he's presenting them with. Jesus was facing real temptation. And look at the kingdom. Here's the third one real quick. The devil took him up onto a high mountain and showed unto him all the kingdoms of this world. What would that have been like? To be able to see all in a moment's time. All the kingdoms of this world. All the power. And Satan said that. Said that all this power I will give thee. And the glory of them. For that has been delivered to me. And you know, in that moment he was right. He was right. I'll give all of this to you, and to whomsoever I will, I'll give it. 
If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. He's offering them a different kingdom. What are these temptations all about? Look at verse, back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. This is after the temptation. I'm jumping ahead. But I want you to see as soon as the temptation's over, as soon as Jesus picks up with his ministry, after John, verse 14, now after that John was put in prison, <clears throat> Jesus came into Galilee and what was he preaching? He was preaching the gospel. Amen? But it's the gospel of the what? Kingdom of who? God. And saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is when? At hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to establish a kingdom. Is Jesus king? If he's king, he's got to have a kingdom. And he came to establish a kingdom. And it's a kingdom like no other kingdom that's ever been in existence. To fulfill all righteousness. To bring men back to God. To deal with sin. To deal with Satan. This is all how it begins. These temptations for Jesus are real temptations. And it's an attempt to keep him from his purpose of destroying Satan's kingdom. Beginning the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And for 40 days, Satan and the principalities and the powers poured out every subtle thing they could come up with in an attempt to persuade the God-man to change his plan and take a different kingdom. Satan offered him physical things. Satan offered him kingdoms of the world. Satan offered him beauty and glory unimaginable. Fame and power all in a moment of time. All of these things, though, wait a minute. All of these things were already offered to Jesus. You say, what? Let me show you another verse. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8. This is another Messianic psalm. You can go back to this psalm and read it. Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. I challenge you to go back and read Psalm 2. It's the whole thing. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with thee, and thou perish from the earth. The kings of the earth, they do rise up against the Father and His beloved, the Son, and they sit in the heavens and laugh. Oh, it's all about Jesus. Jesus had already been offered these things. However, everything about this kingdom is going to be different from other kingdoms. The bringing in of this kingdom of God is going to require what was symbolized at Jesus' baptism. Suffering, death, burial, praise God, resurrection. Separation from the Father, a holy sacrifice. You know what it is? Jesus told us. It's a seed planted in the ground. Death, burial, that sprouts. Resurrection. Isn't that something? Jesus taught us these things. Jesus told us these things. It's going to require those things. Jesus had come to establish this kingdom. And for 40 days, he's tempted to do otherwise. Satan questions the motives of God. As he does in our lives, as he did in Eden. 
He questions the impossibility of the task that is before you. Continuous, insistent temptation. How does it all end? Look at verse 13 of Mark chapter 1. Now again, in Mark 1, we're not given a lot of detail. But look what it does say. And he was there in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. He's with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now Matthew and Luke tell us of the victories, but Mark simply says those statements right there. He is the victorious. Now again, remember, Jesus is often called in the Bible the second what? Adam. The second Adam. Was Adam tempted? And he failed. Adam was tempted and he failed. Adam was tempted and he failed. And by the way, God told us in Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. He was talking about Israel. And yet it's a prophecy about Jesus. And would Israel fail when they were tempted? If you go back to Psalm 91 that we were at a minute ago, you can all think about Israel in connection with Psalm 91. There's so many parallels there. We don't have time to get into all that tonight. Matter of fact, Psalm 91 might have been written by Moses. Moses wrote Psalm 90, and there's no writer listed for Psalm 91. And the Jewish tradition is, if there's no writer listed for a psalm, it's probably been written by the psalmist that wrote the previous psalm and was in the psalm book or whatever in that order. So Psalm 91 might have been written by Moses. And it might have had a lot to do, there's talk about plagues and and uh, uh, all kinds of things that could parallel with the children of Israel. Anyhow, they would fail. They would succeed, they would fail. Jesus Christ came and he succeeded. And he was tempted and he succeeded. And he defeated Satan in his temptation, just like Adam was tempted, but Jesus succeeded. Adam in the garden was with the beasts, was he not? The beasts of the field. Jesus Christ is with the beasts of the field, but they're wild beasts in this instance. Satan is in the garden, one of those beasts, the serpent, tempting Eve. The second Adam is also with the wild beast, and it appears, at least in our passage, that he has complete control over them. That's how I look at that passage there. Jesus is with the wild beasts of the field, and it appears he has complete control over them. This is the God-man being tempted, having complete mastery over his creation. This is the man who stood before the storm and yelled at it, told it to stop, and it, it obeyed him. This is the man who knew there was a coin in the mouth of a fish. Peter was to go get and got the coin out of the fish's mouth to pay the tax. This is the one who has complete mastery and control over creation and over the beasts of the field. And so here's the picture that we get from Mark. Satan and his crowd are insistently, consistently testing and tempting Jesus Christ. And he's with and has mastery over the beasts. And after his 40 days of temptation, the Bible says then that the angels ministered unto unto him. And if you look that up, another way to phrase that is those angels are running upon his errands. What we have in this passage is a picture of a victorious son of God, Jesus Christ. Completely victorious. Completely in control. We see a Lord over the beasts. We see a Lord over the angels. We see a Lord who proves he's victorious over the enemy, Satan. And he will go forward and he will defeat him at the cross of Calvary. Making an open show of them. They could not defeat the Lord Jesus 
in his temptations. The suffering servant of God, perfect, perfect in spite of great temptation. And if you are in Christ, let's bring this home to you and me tonight. Remember our quote that we gave a couple weeks ago? I think it was, I can't remember. Spurgeon, I love this quote. Because this wraps it all up. And I like it when things get all wrapped up. And we can just kind of get it in a nutshell. Some guys have a real, God's given some people ability to just kind of put it in a nutshell. Take this with you. Don't forget it. You stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Now that's just a wonderful statement. You stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if He were you. And I believe we can apply that also to this temptation of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. And yes, Jesus died on our behalf. Amen? And Jesus rose again and on our behalf. And we live with Him as He lives. And Jesus was tempted on our behalf. And He succeeded. And when God looks at me, who does he see? Jesus Christ. The one who was victorious. The one who was victorious. The one who was victorious. The one who had no sin. Because he, when God looks at him, God saw me. And God put all his wrath upon him. We are victorious in Christ. Jesus not only takes the penalty for the wrong things we've done, he also lives out the perfect life that I can't live. Does that mean I have an excuse for messing up, failing in temptation? Absolutely not. Paul dealt with that, didn't he, in many of his letters. All this grace that we sang about a minute ago is so wonderful. Can we just go on and sin? God forbid. And then we get into other principles and other teachings of the Scripture. It doesn't change the truth. And what amazing grace, what truth this is. That Jesus' success in his temptation (laughs) applies to sorry me. His perfect life is also accredited to you and me in our salvation. You have lived a perfect life in Jesus Christ. In the sight of God. I don't know about you, but I don't deserve that. How about you? Because Jesus didn't fail in his temptation. Is what I'm saying true tonight? We're all sinners in who? In Adam. All have sinned in Adam. And if we've trusted in the second Adam, then all of his righteousness becomes ours. All the sin of the first Adam is yours. But when you trusted in Christ, all of Christ's righteousness now becomes yours. Isn't God good? This whole Bible is just all connected, isn't it? It's all one big truth. It's so glorious. So good. God is so good to us. We have a lot to be thankful for. Second Corinthians 1 says, In Jesus, all the promises are yours. All the promises of God in Him are yea, yes, yes. In Him, amen, let it be so. Unto the glory of God by us. We need a Savior, and Jesus came. We didn't just need a hero. We need a Savior, and Jesus came. And He was a Savior that we needed. All the promises are fulfilled in Him. Let's wrap it up. Jesus came from Nazareth. 
Where for 30 years the Son of God lived a self-emptied life, subject to His parents, obedient in the human conditions. Jesus came to men, sinful men. He identified with them the sinless one, beginning His work of being made sin for them in His baptism. He came to God. He was anointed with the Spirit. God the Father confirming what the, the Son was doing. And He came to Satan. He entered into great temptation with Him, and He overcame. He's the great overcomer. He mastered Him. Where the first Adam failed in the garden, the second Adam succeeded. And the angels ministered unto Him. 